0: Well, howdy there, folks. It's me, Heather, back with another episode of Strike Vote, my novel, which I am podcasting as a free audiobook on Substack. And today's date is January twenty-sixth. Here in Canada, we are witnessing something unprecedented. We are witnessing the longest convoy in the world rolling towards our capital. And it's going to get there in three days. And basically what the people want is one united canada and no segregation no coercion no qr codes and no division so it's been really a beautiful thing to see and i just want to say that i wish them all the best with that i will get started on today's reading chapter 13 wildcat (laughs) Being inside the auto plant while an earthquake raged was a scary experience. Instinctively, Deb edged backward until she was standing up against Victor. He slung an arm around her shoulders and held her against him with one arm, and then to keep them stable, grabbed a hold of the lift assist beside him, still hovering with its unmoored tire. Around them, parts racks stacked three layers high started to sway. Overhead, mountain... Mounted equipment did too, and around them, coffee cups, tools, lunch boxes, and radios fell from workstations. At tire install, a bin of lug nuts crashed to the floor. They went rolling everywhere under the unfinished thrust with its empty wheel socket still hanging open like a round comic O of surprise. Suddenly, there was an inhuman groan from somewhere far below them. The ground lurched dizzyingly, and the workers stopped chanting as they clung to each other or whatever they could grab onto for support. A few of them fell, and their co-workers quickly helped pull them back to their feet. When it finally ended, Ricky Jarvis took a look around to see if there was anyone hurt, and then he looked at the octagon with a light of rage in his eyes. Hey, boss man, ain't you got no balls? Come out here and face what you did. He picked up a heavy lug wrenched and thumped it on the concrete floor. (coughs) Excuse me. Hey, Fallon, I'm talking to you, you piece of shit, and I know you can hear me. You better come out here or I'm going in there. Which is it going to be? Inside the octagon, Lawrence Fallon held his ground, returning Ricky's stare from behind his wall of glass. Slowly, deliberately, he crossed his arms, smirked. Ricky's anger hardened, transforming his expression into something a little more menacing. We got a video here, boss man. It says you guys have done a bunch of damage, and now we got some earthquakes here that seem to prove it. If you don't have the balls to come out here, I'm coming in. You feel me? Me and my lug wrench here, we're coming in so you might as well come out and face us. Ricky banged his lug wrench twice on the rubber impact flooring. Instantly, there were seven other temps there, flanking him. Each of them had a tool. They were large wrenches, tire irons, chisels, hammers. They started banging them in time with Ricky, calling Fallon's name between thuds, and all the other workers filed in behind them. The noise was deafening. Multiple, multiple people banging on the factory's many surfaces, each of them banging twice in perfect unison, each of them calling out, speaking truth to power, calling for justice. The proof that what the slideshow had to say was true was all around them. It was there in every toppled coffee cup, every piece of rubble on the floor. Most of them had by now seen the video and the things it had to say had been corroborated by the quake they'd just experienced. The knowledge that their homes and everything they cared about was poised to be taken away by this man's greed, was starting to sink in for them, and they had him trapped. He was one, and they were many, and his only way out was to come right through them. They continued to pound their equipment in unison, calling out Fallon calling him out by name to come and face what he'd done. Fallon! 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 The call resonated through the metal building. At the front of the crowd, Ricky held Fallon's gaze through the glass wall of the octagon. Fallon stared right back at him. At the end of the day, the workers were nothing to Fallon. Their lives didn't mean one single thing to him, not one. Neither did their families, their homes, their future, not his problem, or that's how he'd conditioned himself to think, and he wasn't going out there, not for the sake of some pissant little temp like this one. The call-out went on, and the whole place rang with it. Some workers banged the metal racks. Some pounded the heels of their work boots on the rubber flooring. It got louder, crescendoed, became deafening. The air crackled with the power of the moment. Deb felt a chill go through her, and in the dim recesses of her instinct, in the caverns of her psyche where the carnal remembrances of her foremothers were stored, something stirred, and she shivered with the knowledge, that this moment was historic and symbolic and that history was being made and that she would never ever forget this without knowing morty captured this moment of depths filmed. he had swiveled to do a crowd shot and something about the beautiful black woman standing with the white man's arms around her waist caught his attention There was something about the way her face had changed, something eternal about the light that had come into her eye as she took in the scene. And across the nation, people saw this moment on their TV screens and felt chills go up and down their arms. That's how powerful and charged it was. She withdrew Vic and came to stand beside Ricky at the front, and Vic was right behind her the three of them at the head of the crowd of hundreds of workers of mixed races and ages and social classes and genders, all of them together making up a sample of collective humanity, staring at the one glorified elitist who had put his profits before their safety. People in their living rooms, people stuck in vehicles in the traffic jam outside, people in bars and workplaces across the country watched Inside the newsroom, the anchors, too, were watching silently enthralled as Morty panned the camera into the octagon and narrowed his shot down onto Fallon's face. Fallon had a cell phone to his ear. He was calling Eric Cochran because if anyone could help him, it was him. But there was no answer. The cell phone rang and rang in Cochran's easy chair, forgotten. Of course it was, because Cochran was busy exploring the delights of Cynthia Jennings' exquisite naked body on the bed a few feet away. The camera caught the moment Fallon realized that Cochran wasn't coming. He put the phone down, stared around him, taking in the magnitude of that moment, the gaggle of frightened management types around him in the octagon, many times outnumbered by the riot of workers right outside the door carrying weapons that could easily break down the windows and allowing them access into the octagon. His eyes fell on the camera, which was pointing straight at him, and the people watching saw it perfectly. The moment when he realized that the time was here, and he really did have to face the consequences for his actions. Inside the newsroom, on TV screens across the world, people watching, saw the moment when at at least one billionaire realized that there was no way out, that all those people he'd fucked over actually mattered and that there really would be consequences. All of the money in the world wouldn't buy him a ticket out of this moment. He was going to have to face them. One by one inside the octagon, the management team looked to their leader and he felt the question in their eyes. Was he really going to stay in here, take them all down with him, make them fight? Ill-equipped and outnumbered, was he really going to let the workers storm them in the octagon where they would have no chance? Or would he do the right thing, the leadership thing, and go out and face them? Fallon glared at them, at everybody, but he knew they had him licked. The slideshow all but drew a flowchart as to how the chain of dirty money got to Fallon. He glared at Ricky, standing at the front of the pack, and then he glared at Vic. There was something in Vic's eyes that Fallon couldn't ignore. It was a challenge. An ancient, blood-deep instinct flared to life in Fallon's bones. He couldn't back down any longer. The urge to fight or flight was on him, and escape was not an option. The thought went through his mind, I give the orders here. A sneer curled up one corner of his lip. He was the lion in his den. These people were just rodents clamoring at the entrance, needling him. He couldn't let it happen. His eyes flicked over Ricky Jarvis, but it wasn't him that was their leader. The one he needed to beat was Victor. Fallon saw that clearly. Vic was the alpha male. The battle hardened, and Fallon knew that when he walked out the door, it was the large and burly man that stood beside the trim black woman that he would have to face. His chin firmed up. He lowered his head and thought, You want to call me out, you piece of shit? You're nothing. You and all your friends combined. You're nothing but shit on the boots of someone like me. He raised his head, straightened his tie, and strode towards the door of the octagon. The noise from the plant exploded as soon as Fallon flung it open. The roar of the workers was ear splitting. Fallon slammed it shut behind him, then stomped to Victor. The roar was deafening. Vic held up a hand, however, and it fell silent instantly. The air was charged with tension. It radiated from the workers like an accusation. We're going to get to have our showdown after all, Vic thought, squeezing Dad's hand. She squeezed back. Jamie Sinclair gave a brief voiceover for the newsroom. It looks like there's about to be some kind of showdown. Let's listen in. Fallon and Vic stared at each other. Vic was thinking about punching him right in his smug, privileged mouth. He was a former prize fighter, Vic was, and he knew that if it came to it, he could decimate Lawrence Fallon in a fight, destroy him, demolish him, smash his perfect teeth right down his throat for him, but first he wanted to hear what Fallon had to say. Fallon was thinking about his escape hatch. It was on the roof. There was a helicopter landing pad, and he could see the catwalk stairway climbing up the wall behind the crowd. A matching set of stairs rose up the wall behind the octagon. One way or the other, he was getting up there. After a few long moments, Fallon finally spoke, each word terse and measured. Well, tough guy, you win, okay? You wanted to talk to me, you got me, so don't waste my time. Let's get this over with so you can get back to work, or else I promise you, I'll have this plant shut down and moved to Mexico. Wow, Vic grunted. Mexico, you have any idea how many times I've heard that threat? Go ahead, man. Move. Run like a little bitch rat you are. Go build another plant in Mexico. Damage the ground under their homes, too. Why not? That's what you people do, isn't it? Profit from the resources that belong to all of us. Take everything for yourselves. Fallon said nothing, just glared at him. Vic pressed on. The TV in the break area was running Anderson's slideshow. Vic jerked his thumb in that direction. Well, what about it? What do you have to say? That video there says you caused this mess, this train wreck that's unfolding, that you and your rich buddy sat around a table this morning and decided you were cool with letting the rest of us drown in the flood. Found face radiated outrage. Listen here, you piece of shit. That thing is a crock of shit. You fell for it. Fake news. You watched a video on YouTube and you fell for it. You're just another keyboard warrior, believing everything you see, except you're going to lose your job because of it. I'll shut this plant down around your ears, and if you don't work, you don't get paid. There was no meeting today, and there is no fracking and that means there isn't going to be any flood. So give me your fucking swipe badge and pack up your shit and get out. You're fired, you hear me? Get the fuck out of my plant. Deb heard Jenna's voice inside her ear. Preston, it, it said. And Deb tossed her long hair back over one shoulder. She wasn't going to listen to the sound of Fallon's lies a moment longer. You listen to me, big man. You did do this. You know how I know that? Because we were there today. We were at the municipal building. Me and him. She jerked her thumb in Vic's direction. She watched Fallon's eyes flick over to him and then back to her. Saw the ripple of unease that went through him, and it fueled her onwards. We saw you drive in with that custom thrust we built you. Here in this plant, us, and these workers here, who you've been lying to. We watched you roll in and hand that man a gun. And then he used it to shoot at us. And it's all on film. So let me tell you what's going to happen. You are going to make this right. You're going to march your ass to Cochrane, And you and him are going to pay to get those people on the Bruce to safety. You hear me? And then you're going to tell the government what you did. And that we need to evacuate this area. Because that's what the show says should happen. And deep down inside, you know it's true. Don't you? This fucking plan is over. These people are going home and the next shift after that and all the next shifts after that until you clear this up and you're going to fucking pay us too. Fallon glanced at the lunchroom TV screen. It was playing the slideshow all right. How in the fuck did that happen, he wondered. But that question would have to wait until after. At some point, surely to God, this fucking train wreck would be over and he could escape to the rooftop and call for his chopper to get him the hell out of there. But for now, he was stuck here dealing with these pissant little workers and their problems. He flared his nostrils, looking at Deb like what she was to him, a lower life form. You think you can give orders to me? I'm Lawrence fucking Fallon, he suddenly roared, veins bulging visibly in his neck as he towered over her and raged. I pay your goddamn salary. I built this plant. I'll shut it down. Deb rolled her eyes. We know you murdered Preston, she said coolly. That got his attention. The effect of these five words hit Fallon like a whip. His jaw snapped, closed. His teeth came together with an audible click as he glanced toward the camera. His eyes bulged, but he was listening very very carefully, to what she had to say next. Deb turned toward the camera, speaking directly to the people of Canada, watching from their living rooms. These fools shot a man this morning. His name was Preston, and he was going to tell the cops about that slideshow. Fallon took an involuntary step backwards. He reached out to loosen his tie from around his neck. He swallowed suddenly becoming very aware that this was all being recorded. He cut his eyes from side to side and glanced again at the camera, then began to stammer. He glanced back over his shoulder in the direction of the octagon, but there was no help coming from that quarter. How the fuck could they know that? He felt his nose begin to drip and wiped the back of his hand across it. He cut his eyes towards the cupcake and the power suit and saw to his dismay that she was holding her microphone towards him. This was not good, not good. The camera was rolling. Cochrane would be watching. Shit, he was on the fucking CBC. If he didn't handle this the right way, Cochrane was going to murder him. Of that he had no doubt. He could forget about Jacinta and his private plane. If he didn't handle this exactly right, he was as good as dead. Suddenly a thought sent shivers down his spine. The fox is in Mount Bridges and he has my fucking Glock. Preston was, is, I meant to say is, Lloyd Preston is in Jamaica. He couldn't even make it to the meeting this morning. He was supposed to come, but he didn't. Lloyd Preston is alive and well. You people don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Deb smiled at him, her expression almost sad. I thought you said you never had a meeting. She shook her head, looking at him pityingly. Suddenly the whine of feedback issued forth from the lunchroom TV set. There was an eye-watering electronic screech, and then the scene on the screen cut to greeny footage from inside the municipal building. It wasn't all that clear, but you could make it out. Holy a Deb, come here. You gotta see this. Aw, man, what the hell is the boss man doing here? Man, you're gonna wanna bring that laptop over here if you're still filming. Lawrence Fallon just showed up. It was the footage Deb had spliced into the lunchroom TV feed, the video clip Jay Marksman had sent her. When it came onto the screen, something changed inside the factory. The energy in the room shifted, became surreal. Deb looked at Fallon. Didn't see us, did you, when you showed up to give that man a gun? But we saw you. You're lying, Fallon said. But he was sweating. On the screen, the point of view shifted as Jay Marksman carried the laptop to the window. What is that? Some kind of thrust convertible? Yep. Me and the boys in the paint shop worked on that custom paint job for a week. Robots weren't set up to handle the new contours Fallon wanted on that vehicle. See those fender flares? Fallon insisted on having those, but the paint robots couldn't reach them right, so that's why it came to paint repair. Now there were plenty of Fallon workers squinting at the screen, then peering at Lawrence Fallon disbelievingly, but the action in the clip rolled on. That right there, folks, is a custom thrust convertible, a pilot car that only one man has access to, and that man is Lawrence Fallon. Now, what's he doing in a back alley behind the municipal building in Mount Bridges? Let's watch. They saw Fallon get out of the car and stretch. There was a moment when the camera angle landed perfectly on his face. That looks like the same rich boy tweed blazer and gray slacks you got on right now, Deb commented. And Fallon glanced down at himself. Hey, Carrie, pull the feet up on your phone. Let me know if you can see this in the live stream. It's grainy, man, but it's there. If I zoom in, I can see it. Perfect. On screen, Fallon got the gun case out of the trunk, pulled out the Glock and sighted down the barrel fondly before putting it back in the satchel. Okay, mister Shitting and Grin and Shady Collective Bargaining Tactics, what are you doing with that gun out there? Deb said this quietly on the screen, but in the plant, a ripple of laughter went up. I'll tell you what he's doing. He's one of them. His name was on that email list. He brought to set another gun since Mr. James here took his weapon away. In the plant, they watched as Fallon brought the gun to the driver of the vehicle that was hidden behind the dumpster. They saw him recoil, then hand the gun inside. On screen, Fallon drove off, and seconds later, the gun went off, shattering the window inward while Lodi knocked the people at the window down to safety. Get down! They heard the roar as Lodi knocked Deb flying. There was a moment when Deb's terror-stricken face was captured perfectly by the camera, glass raining all around her as she flew backwards into Vic, who tried to catch her even as he went down himself. On screen, the room dissolved into chaos. The footage wobbled as Jay fell then straightened as he righted the camera in time to see the bullets zinging into the room as glass and shards of concrete brick rained down. Finally, the action quieted. The gun ceased firing. The people in the room lay clustered in a tangle of limbs on the floor. The clip ended. There was a second, briefer whine of feedback, and then the lunchroom screen went back to showing the thrust sales figures. Quiet in the plant. Morty turned the camera, swiveling it from the TV screen to the face of the man everyone had just watched, bring the gun that had been fired, Vic and Debbie. There was no denying it. The clip they had just watched was evidence that painted the truth of the fracking damage all over Lawrence Fallon more clearly than anything else could have. It also painted him as the accomplice in an indictable offense, one about which he had been so blasé about in the video. You gave that man a gun, And he tried to kill us, Deb said quietly. Tears stood in her eyes. Your kind would rather let us die than face the truth of what you've done. All this, the plant, these cars, all a lie, all a scheme that you people set up to profit from, harvesting illegal gas without giving one single crap what it was doing to the world. And we found out you tried to kill us. She took a deep breath and paused, wiping the tears from her eyes with one perfectly manicured hand. And then she raised her chin. It's okay, though, because you know what? I forgive you, she whispered. The good Lord tells us that we gotta see past the things that people do and look for the good inside them that they were born with. But this has to stop. No more. We can't stand for it no more. Rich people like you ruining the earth for your own gain, treating the rest of us like we don't matter. You need to come clean now and admit it so that we can save people, start the healing process, see what can be done to save our land. The camera was still rolling. Across the country, people were watching, riveted in their living rooms. There was a moment when it almost seemed like Fallon was going to do the decent thing. He scrubbed a hand across his face, pausing to pinch the bridge of his nose. He seemed to be warring with himself inside his mind, but then he snapped. You fucking cunt, Fallon screamed. He turned tail and ran in the direction of the octagon. You can't show a video like that. My lawyers will have your ass for this. I will sue you for everything you're worth. He looked back over his shoulder and pointed a finger at Jamie Sinclair. You run that shit on CBC, I'll shut your network down. You think I can? I'll blackball your career. See to it you never fucking work in journalism again. He opened the door of the octagon and stormed inside, slammed it shut behind him, knew that he was fucked. If Cochran saw that footage, or rather, when Cochran saw that footage, Fallon was as good as dead, probably watching right now now, he thought. He had to get out of there. He looked around the room, but its glass walls offered scant protection from the weight of stairs boring into him from the plant floor. He was trapped in an ivory tower of his own making. Fuck, he thought. Then he started barking orders. Get that news bitch out of my plant. In fact, get them all out of my plant. This place is done, shut down, Vanished. Shocked faces gaped at him. No one moved. Are you people fucking deaf? I said, get this place shut down. Get your asses out there and remove those people from my premises. I call the shots around here. Me, so move. I want them gone. He singled out Garrett, the manager of the trim shop. You, you go out there and make those people leave or I swear to God you won't see another cent go in your bank account until this shit blows over. Move, he screamed, and Garrett left the room. Fallon made a call to his personal assistant. Yeah, Carlos, I need that fucking helicopter now. I don't care what it costs or where you get it from. Just have it pick me up on the roof of the thrust plant. He listened for a moment while his assistant barked a few orders at his underlings in Fallon's corporate offices. I don't give a fuck if it's a Huey. Just pick me up. Oh, and if Cochran's people call, You never heard from me. Got it? Good. He looked out the window where an unhappy-looking knot of management, including Garrett and Brentman, were huddled, staring at the throng of workers, strategizing. Their task was daunting. The crowd of riled-up workers outnumbered them tenfold. Fallon swore, then turned back to face the other supervisors. The rest of you go out and help them. I don't care what you call it. Say it's a parts shortage or some shit. Do not acknowledge any truth to that goddamn slideshow. I don't want the press to get a hold of any more details than they already have. But I meant what I said. This plant's shut down. I'm out of here. He ducked out of the octagon and headed for the catwalk staircase. As they watched Fallon scurry up the catwalk, Vic was looking at Deb with surprise and admiration on his face. He rubbed his hands up and down her upper arms, then pulled her to him for a quick squeeze before holding her at arm's length. Where did you come up with that thing about Preston? You fucking slayed him with that shit. Deb's grin was electric. Jenna called me right before he came out here. She said the guy who wrote the slideshow phoned them, told her he tried to make them take it to the authorities to warn the public to evacuate, and they said no. Preston wanted to go public with it, and they killed him. Fallon was involved. She said to hit him with it while the cameras were rolling. And now you have. Jamie Sinclair joined them. Behind her, Morty coiled a long cable around his arm and tucked it neatly into a case. He pulled a memory card out of the camera and tucked it into his breast pocket. Then the camera, too, went in. Show's over, Deb thought. Even though the smile was still on her face, she had to stifle the shudder that wanted to travel through her. The whole country just watched that, Deb. Your little showdown with Fallon there was on live, CBC TV. Newsroom is asking me for a copy of the original video. You know where I can find that? Distractedly, Deb nodded. It's on the live stream on Jenna's Facebook page. Deb had a range of thoughts and emotions going through her. On one hand, she had just become a soundbite on the mass media. That came with its own new reality, she was finding. But if the slideshow was correct, and the more the day wore on, the more she understood that it was, then being on the media was good, because as many people needed to know about the danger as possible. This is not how I pictured this day going when I woke up, she thought to herself for the second time, and smiled. She took a deep breath, a sigh, then looked around at the confusion of the workers milling around. A vague ripple of alarm went through her. She frowned. Guys, we've got to get out of here. Something just hit me. The guy who made the video, he made it because he wanted them to evacuate this area. They killed a man to stop that from happening. We need to get these people out of here, all of them. We need them to evacuate out of southwestern Ontario now, like our house is on fire, because it is. It's going down. If nothing else, that weaselly look on Fallon's face was enough to convince me more than ever that this whole piece of earth is going to crumble. We have to flood the people out of here, get them to safety, because the truth is that it's probably already happening. The sinkholes, that guy Lodi was talking about, The earthquakes, that crack that opened up at wyerton It's already happening, just like the slideshow said it would. Only it's happening now, today. We need to get these people moving. Jamie's respect for Deb was visible. So even though your jobs are on the line, you wanted them to shut the plant down? Vic looked at her sadly. Plant might not even be here tomorrow. We can't let it take people's lives down with it. He looked at Deb a long time. Then the octagon door banged open. Jeff Sims, the HR manager, strode towards them, his eyes fixed on Jamie Sinclair. "Uh Uh-oh, she said. You need to leave. Sims reached over and snapped the visitor pass off of Morty's lapel. Both of you, hit the road. Ricky Jarvis materialized at Jamie's side. He stood slightly in front of her, positioning his body between her and Sims. Truth hurts. Hey, Sims, he said, arms crossed in front of his chest. Save it, Jarvis. The rest of you are done as well. The plants shut down. Go home. You got your way, all right? You're out of work. Good job. Deb shook her head. We didn't get our way. They did. Fallon and his friends. What we got was the shaft, just like us common people always do. But don't worry, we're going. We need to get our families out of here before the flood comes, don't we? Sir. Sadness and pity were etched on her face. She turned toward the crowd. You heard the man. What's at hit the road. A murmur of chatter went up. A feeling of something different hung on the air. Deb tried to put a word to it. Dismay was close, but not quite right disillusionment was better, or betrayal. She looked around at the workers, some of whom had started slumping towards the exit doors. They knew they'd been duped. They'd been like collared rats running to do someone else's bidding, running to advance a system that they had never quite believed in. And now that jig was up, and they'd come to realize that the thing that they'd been running towards was the destruction of their own freedom and their homes and lives and happiness. There is no word for that, she thought. There was anger, but that anger was impotent because the damage was done and there was nothing they could do about it. Ricky Jarvis still stood toe-to-toe with Sims. Deb could see that he had plenty of anger. It was there, all right, but there was something else as well some other emotion warring with that anger just underneath the surface. Struggling to break free, she thought. Rick held his ground and then slowly and deliberately he pulled his employee's swipe card out of his back pocket and dropped it on the ground at Sims' feet. Disdainfully, he stepped around the man and Jamie went with him toward the door. One by one, the other workers followed suit the audible patter of plastic swipe carts could be heard landing at Sims' feet until only the workers left were Vic and Deb. Until the only workers left were Vic and Deb. Sims could not resist a parting shot. The 402's a clusterfuck. When you all stopped the line, you jammed it up with parts trucks. Ain't nobody getting out of here by that row. Vic met his smirk head on there was a quiet kind of dignity in Victor's eyes as he held his swipe card up. It didn't have to be this way, he said, then dropped his card and ground it beneath the heel of his steel-toed boot. Deb stepped up to Sims. A flash of intuition struck her. She cocked her head. You knew about the fracking, didn't you? You tell that to your kids one day when they have no place to live and no clean water to drink. When they're refugees, like the rest of us, you tell them that you went along with it, all right? You tell them that for me. Tossing her swipe card on the pile, she stepped around the HR manager and joined the others, heading for the door. Behind the plant, Abdul Chams was on the phone with his wife, Jamila, who was home in their tiny apartment, pacing. She rubbed at an ache in her lower belly. Not yet was a thought that she sent to the baby. I can't get out, Abdul said. The truck's only half unloaded. The conveyance mechanism is still inside. Boss man told me that the team that operates it all went home. I'm going to have to leave it here. Jamila had a headache that was beginning to feel like a migraine. She pressed her forehead with one hand and held the phone with the other. How are you going to get home? She said quietly. Abdul peered across the expanse of pavement that surrounded the building. There was a gap in between two transport trucks parked with their flashers on, and through it he could see a narrow slice of the 402 overpass in the distance. He took a deep breath and puffed air outwards. I guess I'm going to walk back up the road and get in with Bert. Maybe he can get his truck out. If not, I guess I'm walking. I'll get home to you somehow, I promise. You call your mom, okay? Ask her to come over. I don't want you there alone. In their living room, she was watching the news. There were multiple, multiple sinkholes opening up across the region. The news feed hopped from one unbelievable scene to the next. She felt tears threaten and forced herself to breathe, to stay calm. I'm scared, babe. The news, there's so much going on. You think what that slideshow said is going to happen is real? You think that this part of the world is going to flood? He thought back to the last tremor and the quake before that and the one before that, and he shook his head. I don't know, but I'm going to get home to you. I promise. He hung up, started walking, thinking of the picture of the trench that Bert had sent him. The trench that had opened up along the median during the last quake. More like a mud hole, really. He couldn't get it off his mind. He had to get home to her. He had to make sure that she was safe. And more importantly, he was starting to realize that meant that they had to evacuate southwestern Ontario. For the second time in his life, after having fled from Syria, he would be a refugee. He felt hot tears rise up and swallowed them back down. Up ahead, the door to the plant swung wide open. Workers started pouring out. Wilson Smythe was there, shepherding them out the door. There was a huge backlog of employee cars trying to get out of the lot. The workers who had been among the first to toss down their swipe cards and walked out had made it to their vehicles. It hadn't taken them long to discover that there was no way out onto Hickory. Traffic was jammed all the way back past the entrances to the plant for at least a mile, and the 402 didn't appear to be moving either. The last workers to leave were Vic and Dem, who walked out into the sunshine, holding hands as Wilson Smythe glowered at them. One young man came up to Smythe. How are we going to get out? Roads blocked. Smite shrugged. Not my problem. He turned on his heel and strode back into the plant. Then he clanged the door shut behind them. They heard the deadbolt snap home. It was the end manera for the Fallon plant. Abdul watched this exchange with growing despair. He felt tears threatening again and had to turn his face away. He had to get home, had to get to Jamila. She was scared and so was he more than he'd been at any point since they'd left Syria together. He looked down the receiving lane that led out to Hickory, trying to spot Bert's rig. Outside the turnstile gate, a crowd of workers was gathering on foot around a pickup truck that was parked in a maintenance slot a few feet away. Abdul saw a big burly man with a brush cut climb inside the box of the pickup truck, and hold a handout to help a beautiful black woman in. The crowd pressed up against the truck, and it looked like they were there to listen to something that this couple had to say. Abdul went to join them. He stood at the back of the crowd to listen. All right, well, I'm going to leave it there for today, folks. That was a very long chapter. Next up is Chapter 14, Reconfiguring, and... uh, Yeah, just a general comment that this whole experience is so surreal. I don't know if anyone will ever listen to this. Who knows? All I know is I'm recording this scene that I just read to you today on a day when hundreds of Canadians are essentially going on strike from what the government wants and circling the wagons and heading towards Ottawa to stand up for their rights. They're going to go on strike from passports, mandates, the loss of bodily autonomy. And I'm reading out loud this episode where the characters in my novel just went on strike from greed as well. This is an incredible time to be alive and be in Canada. And like I said, I don't know if anyone will ever Listen to this, but man, I just, I'm thankful that I'm here. I give gratitude to my ancestors for bringing me to this particular moment in time. And I give gratitude to all of the Canadians out there right now who are standing up, standing together. Stay free out there, guys. I'll see you tomorrow. Good luck.